Welcome back to part two of the September 2020 BJJ 360 podcast. I'm continuing to be joined by uh, Professor Ben Oliver from Nottingham and Mr. Brett Rockos from Toronto. Um, so picking up where we left off, guys, I'm going to start now with my three papers to highlight from the roundup section. Really, the theme that sort of joins them is I found them interesting because I could immediately relate to, to clinical practice. You know, it was a pretty, they were pretty simple papers with simple messages and I thought this actually makes me think about the job we do on a day-to-day basis. Um, So the first one uh, was from the trauma section which was a paper from Adelaide and it was looking at the prevalence of rotational malalignment in tibial fractures following intramedullary nailing Uh, and it's something that I think we all sort of you know um, try and think about at the time and certainly worry about afterwards but this paper highlighted that actually they noticed in up to 25% of their tibial nailings there was a a 15 degree or greater difference between the injured and nailed limb compared to the contralateral side, Um, which which is certainly quite stark. I would say that 15 degrees, you know, we would probably say that was important and we'd like to all think we're better than that. And I suspect this paper suggests, you know, we're not. But the other interesting thing this paper mentioned is that they noted this was far more likely to be uh, identified in the left side compared to the right. And that's because in the normal anatomical limbs that they compared, there was a four degree external rotation difference between the right and left with the right being externally rotated. So that was an interesting uh, observation as well as part of that paper. Uh, The second one was from the children's section. uh, And this was a paper from San Francisco looking at the popular topic of the contralateral slip in Sufis. And they were basically trying to find predictive factors, as is common theme in this area of the literature. And they identified age less than 11, an Oxford score less than 20, and an epiphyseal diaphyseal angle of uh, less than 21 degrees um, were all independent factors associated with subsequent slip in the other side. But interestingly, when all three of those factors were present, the risk of subsequent slip was 70%. And that might be of interest to our colleagues who do children's, in particular paediatric trauma, in trying to predict when and if the uh, contralateral pinning is relevant. And finally, from the research section, I thought this was a real gem of a paper. Um, and this work from China, from Hao, um, looked at the um, bacteria found at the initial debridement of open fractures and then compared it to subsequent causative organisms um, in infections that they treated. And they found uh, as is probably predictable, that the most prevalent causative organisms later on were gram-negative or polymicrobial, but in 60% of cases, it varied from the initial one cultured. And I thought that had immediate implications to our practice. In A, um, how often are we achieving samples and what treatment are we, sorry, what samples rather are we basing treatment on? And B, where are these other bugs coming from? Should we be looking at, and there's lots of literature obviously coming out about negative pressure dressings or occlusive dressings, et cetera. But really, if we're having that many differences in terms of the bacteria at various stages, should we be really honing in on how we manage our open fractures? So they were my three to highlight. So if I come to Professor Oliveira, you're going to give us a look forward, is that right, into the next, into what will be the October edition of the 360? Yeah, a couple of papers to whet people's appetites, Sarah, although I'm quite interested in the, and I remember editing it as, as Brett submitted his, his edited summary of the, of the C-spine paper, and I think it really is relevant just 
across the whole of practice. You know, and I remember reading and thinking, well, no, that's because they've had lunch or not, whether it's because they're later on, whether it's because the nursing staff haven't got them right, whether it's because they get to recovery and everybody wants to go home and just put some onto the ward. And I think, you know, it is just, just worth bearing in mind. One of the joys of 360s, you get easy access to, to literature from outside of your specialty. Because I never would have read that yeah. had I not been involved with 360. And I think, I think that that's really important. Um, and I've tried to, to pick my papers around the theme and maybe I shouldn't have done having heard Brett's little picks and your little picks, but I've, um, I've chosen to look at something I think is, is highly topical actually. And, and it's relevant to everybody who's got a trauma practice and probably everybody who's got a spine practice or, or anything by a pediatric practice actually. And that, that's sort of catastrophic bone failure and how we, um, how we manage that. So I've chosen three papers to do with supercondylar fractures of the femur. And, you know, as, as, as you know, um, problem here is that as you get older your bone changes shape and not only does your bone change shape but it becomes osteopenic uh, and this, the constructs that we put in are becoming increasingly ambitious in order to try and prevent periprosthetic fracture try and prevent fatigue failure and um, on the one hand you know if you if you sort of heal with steel there's the the uh, advantage that it doesn't um, that it doesn't result in failure of the metal work quite so often. Uh, on the other hand, you've got the biological issue. So, so I'm just going to run you through three very quick papers, which I think put into perspective this issue with, with distal femur. Um, and the first one is a paper from Wright et al. Um, from California. Um, and what they were asking was, you know, what is the best kind of supplemental fixation? So it's become pretty popular in the States now and it's becoming... Uh, more popular in the UK, not just to put a nail in or a plate, but to go, well, you know, one's good, so maybe two's better. Um, and they looked at a nice little paper looking at dual plate and plate nail constructs. A plate nail construct being essentially a nail and a plate where you lock the screws through the nail, those who haven't done them. Uh, and obviously you've got, a, you've got a vastly different biomechanics there. So they did a whole lot of initial experiments on 24 synthetic osteoprotic uh, femurs and, and they then went on to, to refine that in paired cadaveric studies, paired specimens. And what they essentially were able to do was to quantify the increased stiffness that you get from these constructs and essentially demonstrated that the dual plate constructs were much stiffer than the plate nail constructs, which they concluded was a, was a good thing. Um, and obviously it is a good thing if you want to make it stiffer, but if you don't want to make it stiffer, then perhaps it's not such a good thing, but it, it, it's good to understand the um, mechanics behind this. And, um, which is why essentially I've chosen three papers on the same topic because that, that then brings us on to the, the second little snippet, um, which is about double plating of the, of the femur. Um, and it's from Rolly Ketel, based in New York. And what they were looking at was what happens to the blood supply. And it's a really fascinating paper. It's a cadaveric paper, but they did contrast CTs and MRI scans on their cadaveric specimens. And how on earth they did that, I'm not entirely sure because it, it sounds sort of implausible. But they did, and they, they were able to validate it. And they looked at... Um, they looked at um, filling the vascular supply, then undertook their plating and were able to look at what happens as far as the blood supply is concerned, which is one of those things that's always, always worried me about this sort of dual plate construct. And they found that actually there was only 4% difference in terms of damage to the small vessels um, from dual plating versus single plating. So that kind of, you know, is potentially a practice changing thing for me because I wouldn't have considered dual plating because of that kind of strippage, AO dead bone sandwich kind of thing. Um, and it is becoming more popular and maybe it is because you can get away with it. And that, that paper sort of um, highlights that potentially as a, um, as a, as a thing. Um, and just as an aside, they established that plating the distal femur full stop reduces your blood supply by about 20%. So it's 20% versus 24% reduction in the, in the blood supply. Of course, they haven't... Um, 
they haven't told you how safe it is to, to daddle around on the distal medial end of the femur and, and you know, not for the faint hearted, but I do do it occasionally. Um, and that brings me to the third paper, which kind of explains perhaps the reason that people are looking at putting plate nail constructs or um, dual, uh, uh, dual plating, uh, which is a paper from Greenville in South Carolina. Uh, it, it's Bed Adetel. Uh, and they just asked the question, um, you know, really do the distal femur plates fit? And so they took um, CT scans of intact femurs, a pretty straightforward, you know, kind of resident registrar project. They used trauma CAD. They had, um, uh, I can't remember how many exactly. It was uh, 32 uh, distal femurs and looked at the common brands of um, implants. And, and amazingly, on average, the best fitting plate, which was a striker plate, stood off by five millimeters, half a centimeter. So it's not surprising if you put something on like that, a cantilever, or you don't put it on as cantilever and you overreduce the fracture. So you're giving the, giving the patient a, a varus or a valgus deformity, they're gonna have a problem. Next up was the Smith Nephew plate, which is seven millimeters. The Synthes plate, a whopping eight millimeters off the femur, and Zimmer, a whole centimeter, 9.3 millimeters off the femur on average at the widest point. So maybe, the solution here is to make implants that fit rather than um, taking the implants that don't quite fit and adding a second one to make it stiffer. So I thought those three papers just kind of sat together really nicely and, and told a story about a problem and um, maybe the solution for it. And maybe my own view is that we should be thinking about either accurately contouring our plates or maybe coming up with some better ones that um, do actually fit the average femur. So those are my three little picks. Yeah, I really enjoyed those, Ben, actually. I like the theme between them. They do sort of lend, each, lend themselves to discussing as a group. Um, do you know, it's something that uh, comes up quite often in discussion. And I, you know, being north of the border, um, we're sort of slightly spared from this. But in terms of best practice... Is that sunshine you're talking about? <laughs> Listen, uh, you know, I, I won't tell you the figures about Glasgow and the number of days of rainfall. It's uh, it's too depressing to talk about right now. Um, but yeah, so the um, best practice tariff in England, my understanding is that some of the standards that apply to necophema are going to be rolled out and applied to femoral fractures, um, potentially later this year That's or right. next. And, right. you know, you're going to need to, basically, we're going to need to be fixing these uh, femoral fractures in osteoporotic patients in a way that allows us to mobilize them day one, which is what we expect of our necophema fractures. And for me, that means that there's going to be a, you know, a significant increase in interest in these uh, either nail plate combinations or dual plating, as you say. So definitely an area of big interest. I think, I think there is. I think, you know, I mean, talking about that from a philosophical perspective, and it, it is interesting, you know, you can't prioritize everything because you end up back where you started. Mm -hmm. So how much do you prioritize in order to get things to the top of the list? One of the things that worries me a little bit, although, you know, it is, it is, it is my friend and colleague, Chris Moran, who pushes these, these things forwards and, you know, he's a wise man, but one of the things that we fail to do in the NHS um, and in hospitals in general is increase capacity. So if we make too much stuff, an urgent target, you know, we've got to do ankles within a certain period of time. We've got to do hip fractures in a certain period of time, femoral fractures, open fractures. What happens to the poor little old lady with a wrist fracture who's there, you know, a number of days later still sitting on the ward so there is a you know i think it's absolutely right don't get me wrong that we um that we uh can strive to do better and particularly for the frail patients but i think it's really important on a local level that these things are used as levers to increase capacity rather than 
just chasing the target and artificially making other patients wait longer. It's a, it's something we've really got to do as a, as a system change lever rather than, rather than simply become target driven. Like a lot of family health and general practice doctors have become, you know, where you, you go in, you go in because you sprained your ankle and you get your cessation of smoking advice and they tick two boxes. Yeah. Yeah. I think they're um, very valid points. And on the second paper there, we, we had a discussion recently actually, and actually to do with proximal tibial fractures, um, uh, to do with the anatomic plating system we're using. And the you know, designers of these plates tell me that the proximal tibia is the most anatomically varied area in the body, and that's why none of the plates have a perfect fit and things. So actually, it's, you know, it's very interesting to hear about the studies of the distal femoral plating uh, fitting, because it's sort of the problem with the anatomic. I suppose it's, they're just composites, aren't they, of everyone's anatomy, and therefore they actually anatomically fit no one. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's, it's not rocket science, isn't it? We've all done knee replacements. Yeah. Knee replacement systems come in you know, come in two sizes, sometimes male and female, and they get two sides, sometimes male and female, and a bunch of sizes, normally six. So, you know, that gives you at least 12 different geometries, and yet we're surprised when one average plate doesn't fit every single femur. Uh, yeah, well, surprise. I don't know if I'm ever surprised that mine don't fit, but, you know, disappointed maybe, yeah. So uh, now I take your point. But we haven't said anything about spine or peds for about six minutes now, so... If we can wake Brett up, um, we'll move on. Yeah, I'm feeling left out. Yeah, um, just just chime in, you know. I mean, if you're waiting for Ben um, and I to stop speaking, uh, well, you know, we, nothing would ever happen, would it? Yeah, you know, our, our implants aren't aren't typically anatomically fitting. You know, we contour our own rods. We we our cages are fairly uniform in size and shapes. It's not something that we encounter too often, though. You do see it with occipital condyle plates and um, occipital cervical fusions and so on. So, I'm sure it will come to us eventually. But it's interesting that. You know, going back to Ben's point about the knees, you know, every single patient of ours, the rods are a different shape. You know, there is an infinite variation and we don't think too much about it. You know, in the old days when they did use plates, they were using one third tubulars and what we now call the recon plates to, to fix pedicle screws. And we're contouring them as well. There was never an attempt at anatomical implants in any shape or form. So, yeah, you know, I think it's this personalized thing is coming. What we are seeing on this side of the Atlantic now is more and more sort of customized implants and so on using 3D printing. So I'm sure that's the future, even in trauma. Even in trauma. We'll, we'll just wait. This even in trauma. Um, <laughs> we're we're going to move on to the... Back. I'm sure it's a great idea, Brett. <laughs> yeah, hang, hang on there with you your you think there's an anatomical plate coming don't worry the printer's just yeah, on it that's right <laughs> long traction uh, for six days and anatomical plates perfect um right we're going to move on to the sort of the main course as it were um so the paper that i had highlighted um for discussion guys was um a paper uh from Florida, um, which was in relation to the modern uh, results of functional bracing of humeral shaft fractures, a multi-center respect, uh, respective analysis. And this is from Serrano and Shah in, uh, in Tampa. Um, and I picked this one really because, um, you know, humeral shaft fractures and when do you leave them alone? When do you intervene? Which ones need fixing? I think is a, just a question that comes up every fracture clinic, you know, is, is this okay in a brace? Um, is this brace all right? This brace is rubbing, you know, do we need to do anything with this? And I think it's an area that, you know, um, we could never be too well informed about basically. Um, and what the guys in Florida did was a, was a large um, retrospective cohort essentially. And they took data from nine centers, nine level one centers in the US. So we need to sort of, I think, be 
just acknowledge the fact that these are all big trauma centers in the US um, from a, over a, a long period between 2005 and 2015, so 10 years worth of data from these nine centers. And they based their analysis and conclusions on the follow-up of um, over, well, nearly 1,200 patients. And the big headline of this paper was that only 71% of those 1,200 patients uh, went on to heal without some sort of surgical intervention. So the big headline is, you know, almost 30% of patients ended up with some sort of intervention for humeral shaft fractures. Now, they only looked at um, shaft fractures, nothing with an extension into the shoulder or elbow, or elbow joint. Um, they excluded any patients that had an ipsilateral, you know, additional upper limb injury. So whether that be elbow, wrist, forearm, whatever, they all went. So it was all... Uh, humeral fractures and basically there was a quarter of proximal fractures quarter of distal um, diaphysis and half of them were in the middle um, so that was sort of the spread basically um, they looked at this paper was interesting I thought because it actually built on the the, the um, lead author had already published their results of their single center which again was quite pro, you know pro-intervention or rather certainly highlighted deficiencies in purely conservative management of these fractures and I think they then went and made this much larger collaborative paper. So in terms of their treatment algorithm so that we can compare it to our practice they said that these patients were seen in the emergency department and they were put into um, you know a, a coaptation or a splint or back slab so a sugar tong splint or a back slab for two weeks um, and then they were brought back to the fracture clinic at about two weeks and they were assessed for the adequacy of the position. And they defined adequacy of position as less than 30 degrees of varus valgus, less than uh, in the coronal plane, less than 20 degrees of um, AP angulation in the lateral, and uh, less than 30 millimeters of shortening. So if you passed all of those tests, you were put into a functional brace. They were assessed at four weeks, uh, eight weeks, three months, and six months, or until they were radiologically united. Um, the analysis that they've done, they've described the stats that they've, they've employed, which look like, you know, robust stats, no big alarm bells there. Um, one of the downsides that I saw when I initially reading the paper was that there was no power calculation with this paper. So it's just large numbers. But in fact, they retrospectively did a post hoc power analysis and said that the numbers were sufficient to detect a small to moderate effect size, which I thought was, was lended credence to the results. In terms of just before we go into the analysis, one of the limitations of the paper is that they initially actually found about 1,500 patients that were suitable for this um, study, but lost 290 of them to follow up basically to, to either non-attendance or migration out of region, and those patients weren't followed up. So that's, that's about 20% actually, so it's really a conclusion based on an 80% follow-up. Um, so they followed these patients up and they said, okay, well, what were the reasons for intervention? And they basically defined, they've identified four reasons why surgery would become advised. And that was clinical, which was movement or pain, or radiological signs of a non-union. The pain um, or non-compliance with the brace because of rubbing or inability to wear it for some other reason. That the fracture reduction had been lost and wasn't um, regained on reapplication of the, of the brace. Um, or a persistent radial nerve palsy, which required exploration. And they found that union was achieved on a, at an average of about 15 weeks with these patients. So in terms of those four reasons, the big 
The main one for intervening was non-union, which of their 344 patients, so 29% of the patients that went on to get surgery, 60% of that, or 17% of your overall population, were judged to have a non-union and had a, had a fixation because of that. 24% uh, of the surgical population, but 7% of that original uh, group, uh, of the whole group, had a malalignment, unsuitable for continuing conservative management. Um, and 3.5% um, of the, uh, sorry, 12% of the revisions uh, of the surgical candidates, or 3.5% again of the overall 1,200 patients, were unable to tolerate the brace. And a very small number were explored because of persistent radial nerve palsy. So they were sort of their, their interventions. So putting it out to you guys just at the start there, they seem like reasonable reasons for intervening. Any other things that you see in a clinical practice? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be really pedantic about post-hoc power calculations. Okay, a, go for it. It's, it's a really important thing and, and, and people kind of misunderstand it because we've, we've ended up with, um, ended up with mal statistics practice. If that such thing exists, you know, um, Mr. Machen would be upset about the, the statistics litigation and it going up um, because this is one of those things that we do and we don't really think about and we shouldn't do because the point of power calculation is to work out how many people you need to work out if you've got a type two error, i.e. not finding a difference when actually there's one there. So if you found a difference and then you do a post-hoc power calculation to say there's enough patients to not find a difference, it adds nothing to the study because you've taken an effect size you've already seen. So you, you think I mean? basically it's, it's, it's completely irrelevant. It's a self-confirming Yeah, it's a self-confirming thing. And, and people world over kind of, yeah, you know, it is published and you can kind of do it. And if you read the statistics literature, which I'm really sad to say that on occasions when nobody's looking, I do. Um, you, you'll find that, you know, the world is split slightly on post hoc calculations of any, of any variety, you know, but post hoc power to me doesn't add anything to a retrospective study where you've basically collected the numbers that you have and you found a difference. It doesn't say anything. It just makes people think that you've conducted it with a higher level of rigor than you actually have because there is a difference. So there can never be no difference. So the post hoc power doesn't Add, doesn't add anything at all. It's one of those things that we kind of read and think, oh yeah, you know, they did it right. And actually, it just no, shows I thought the purpose of that was that it essentially prevented you just overpowering studies, saying, well, I'm going to collect, you know, data on a already, huge, huge already, number of patients. You've already collected it. When you do post hoc, you've already collected it. So you're so when you do when you do a sample size calculation, which is what it what it actually is, what what you do is you look at the look at what you'd expect to see in terms of a difference. You look at the populations and you say, well, how many how many patients would I need to see to avoid a type two error? You know, there, there being a difference and not, not finding one. Um, but this paper can't have a type two error because they found a difference. So it, they can't have a, they can't have type two error. And again, it's one of those things that we do just kind of slightly misunderstand. And so we think it adds rigor and believability to the paper. Whereas to my mind, it actually does something slightly different to that. It suggests that they haven't really sought statistical advice and they've done something that is kind of valid, but doesn't, doesn't add what they think it does to the paper. So that, that would be my, my two minutes on, on post hoc power calculations. I'm sure I'll get lots of angry emails from cleverer people than me, like Professor Costa saying there is some reason. But in fact, I, I'm pretty certain <laughs> Matt would agree with me on this. There's no, there's no valid reason for doing a post hoc sample size calculation, which is essentially what they've done because you've already defined your sample. Um, so that was my first thing. My, my second thing was, you know, I kind of want to believe this paper because it sort of reflects what I see in practice and there's nothing 
better than self-affirming your own pre-existing beliefs yeah. by reading it in a paper and saying, yeah, I'm absolutely right, which is, you know, we all know that Gus Sarmiento's fallout rate was low. We know that he convinced patients to, to stay in their splints, but we do yeah. know that if you persevere with it, splinting is a reasonable thing for most patients. But the thing that concerns me about this is, you know, nine level one centers, so 118 fractures per year, and you kind of alluded to it. And that means that you've got one per month per center. Mm -hmm. And that actually suddenly doesn't sound so believable when you say no, exactly. one, yeah. one patient in, because, you know, they will have had a lot more than one patient that was suitable for bracing. So what have they done? Have they not reported them? So that just adds a little bit of, you know. Well, that's the thing. I think, I think, you know, I think that's an interesting design thing. And it's certainly something that I wondered because, <clears throat> you know, the, I'm, I'm not sure that the level one trauma centers in America are necessarily the place to pick up all of your community community fractures exactly exactly um so i think it doesn't diminish the ones that they have collected but it does as you say yeah. by the time you do the maths is how many we're getting and how often over what period of time it does start to make you think okay well maybe it's not take home for me fractures. is you know non-union is is more common than than we traditionally mm. taught that it is and we know that because we all do a few um i think that i think the really interesting paper um and it's a couple of years old now i had to i had to look the reference up uh, while you were talking um is um is the paper from ken eagle's group um, is that the new york paper that's the that's the new york paper which yeah. is 2017 from jo2 which is entitled fracture site mobility is six weeks after yeah you exactly on union and that is a real practice changing thing for me so you put the two together you get there's an easy way to see whether it's going to heal or not wag it about at six weeks and see whether it moves and moving it you know the non-union is more common than we expect and suddenly that changes my practice that says to me okay at six weeks if you don't seem to be progressing bail out yep. and you probably end up at about the right number then in terms of yeah the numbers so in, in i mean that was the next thing i was going to go on to with this paper is that they have and i think in you know a fairly reasonable way they've tried to say well can we predict who's going to go on to non-unions or failure of bracings etc and the the groups that come out consistently um, in terms of patient demographics, they identified were white patients, um, female patients, and interestingly, employed patients. Um, now, in a North American system, whether that defers any, confers rather any information about follow-up or likelihood to intervene would be an interesting topic, I think. Um, another one, when they looked at non-union specifically, alcoholics uh, had a, an increased risk of going on to, to non-union, as did um, high energy injuries, you know, um, basically cars versus pedestrians, you are more likely to go into a, a non-union um, than if you had a low energy mechanism of injury. No, I agree. And, and there's also the thing about brace compliance and just, just yeah. to make Brett feel involved, because obviously, you know, spinal bracing is one of those things that one reads about <laughs> rather than does to one's patient. I think yeah, absolutely. And, and the thing is, if you like, it appears to me that if you lock the pay, if, if you actually talk to the patient about their brace, their humoral brace, tell them how to use it, how to tighten it, how to do all that kind of thing, what the purpose is and persuade them to wear it and engage with the treatment. It's probably quite successful, similar to scoliosis bracing. Yeah, absolutely. A brace on the side doesn't do anything at all. You know, yeah. they have to wear it and engage with it and so on. So, yeah. Absolutely. I think that's one of the things about the, the sort of the unsexy side of these, um, you know, humoral fracture management is, is actually the time invested in clinic and also the support for patients in between fracture clinics in terms of yeah. being able to come in, have a look at their brace, it's rubbing there, you know, because again, one brace does not fit all patients and they do and need a bit of customization. You know what, Sarah, if I was at six weeks with a mobile fracture site 
you know, and I tried this, you know, brace that was a pain and I couldn't wash properly and all that kind of stuff. And it didn't appear to be progressing towards healing. I'd get it fixed. Yeah. <laughs> you well, know, I think that's and, the thing. I think some enters work. Come in and you see patients yeah. come in, you know, they're doing okay. They're back at work. Things yeah. are progressing, you know, avoid their radial nerve complication. Well, I think that's the thing. So some enters, exactly. So some enters work really said that essentially you can brace all of these. They'll all heal. But equally, union at nine months was considered a victory. Whereas I think for a large proportion of our um, patient population, and I think all three of us, union at nine months would not feel like a victory. Um, it would be a significant life-changing event to have a wobbling arm for nine months. And I think for me, this paper brings up a really interesting sort of philosophical uh, thing, which is that any paper that promotes or, or any, if you, if you pursue a conservative management of an injury, all of the risk is assumed by the patient. You know, it might not go on to heal. It might not go on to heal in a good position, etc. It might have functional implications. It might have implications in delay for your job, etc. All these things, but they're all assumed by the patient. Whereas any time that we do an operative um, intervention, we start to assume certain risks. We feel liable for infection or nerve injury, uh, non-union, etc. And I think any, therefore, any paper that is trying to move us from an, where, where an injury, a practice where an injury is largely conservatively managed to saying, let's have an increasingly interventional uh, uh, input to these, to these fractures is always going to uh, come up against that barrier of this, who is assuming the risk mm. for this going wrong. So, so based on that, can this paper, you talked about the paper from New York, which same, same for me, that's the one I always quote and I always give it a wobble at six weeks. But should this give us increased confidence in intervening earlier for some injuries? So I think we probably already are. I think it's just okay. a bit of Emperor's New Clothes. You oh, know. Okay. So, so, so I do. I think, I mean, you know, Nottingham is a very conservative unit. You've worked with us. You know yeah, we're a conservative sure. unit. Um, but actually... If a month and a half later the patient has no progress towards healing, I give him an operation. Mm -hmm. And but I think it's one of the things we still teach all our residents. Everybody gets a brace, but but actually we probably already know the answer. We're just not not doing it. We're quite good at picking the ones early that need surgery, and they tell you, you know, they don't tolerate a brace. It's really sore and painful. They come back to clinic, and basically, you know, if you don't give them an operation, then they bring their husband or wife to berate you into doing an operation, and that's normally the right thing to do. What we're, what we're bad at is recognizing that we waste patients' time for eight weeks when we know it really isn't going to heal. You know, yeah. we know, we see the yeah. patient, there's no progress, it's all a bit wobbly, and you sort of say, you know, keep pumping your bicep, we'll see you soon. <laughs> Make sure your elbow doesn't get stiff, so when I have to do your non-union surgery at six months, like, <laughs> I yeah. can move the well, arm. Um, yeah, I mean... I think uh, we already know it, we should just do it, you know? We should just, and, well, so yeah, so I think this, exactly, I think this paper can actually give us a bit of increasing, you know, gusto to say, actually, you know, we know some of these don't do well, and it's not all of them, because actually 70% of them healed absolutely fine, but there's a significant portion here, and certainly doing a non, doing something that hasn't united, for, trying to plate it at six weeks is very different from trying to plate it at six months, in terms of, um, you know, the technical demand of that procedure, the risks involved in it, and all the rest of it. Professor Oliver is going to go on and say, yeah, we, we know this now. We should be embracing this. Absolutely. Embracing, embracing. Okay. Embr Give a try. Yeah. doesn't work. Do something else, right? Do something else. Excellent. So I, I wanted to discuss the, the Impact Scott paper. 
Um, just come from my, my dear friend Andrew Duckworth and colleagues in, in Edinburgh. Uh, so that's part of the reason that I, I feel fuzzy and warm towards this paper. Um, and I know that, you know, um, the whole of Scotland is a happy place. So you probably feel fuzzy and warm towards this paper as well, Sarah. Uh, ab- yeah, absolutely. It's a family up here, for sure. Um, but, the, but the, you know, COVID has changed all of our lives. And those of us interested in research, you know, you kind of, you're not entirely sure what to do. And the reason I picked this out is actually because I think it's really well done within the constraints okay. of what, what they were what they had available to them. So, you know, the background, everybody knows like COVID, yeah, you know, it's a bad thing, affects frail people, high mortality. Um, but the things that, that people might not know, having read the, the impact paper, which is, which is basically about the effects of neck of femur or COVID on neck of femur patients in Scotland is that, you know, it, it came out of the Scottish hip fracture audit stopping. So Scottish hip fracture audit stops and a group in Edinburgh think, well, what can we do about this? It's really important for us to know what's going on in, in COVID. So that, that's the first thing is that, that for me, that's a really proactive, like we're, we're, we're trying to rearrange our service. We're doing all sorts of other bits and pieces, and we're actually going to look after our patients. We're going to audit like we should. Um, so they, they get on the phone to their various friends around Scotland and they identify nine units that are able to recruit patients to a sort of rapid sprint audit. And they do you know, 23 days pre-lockdown, they do 23 yep. days post-lockdown. And it is a little bit of a messy paper. You know, it's a paper that, that does have multiple endpoints, but it's clearly not been well thought through because how can you think through something that you do on, you know, on the hop? So there's lots of secondary outcomes. And I think people mm-hmm. you know, feel a little bit funny about that. But, but actually, it's a really good paper. They managed to get 317 patients in very rapidly. Um, you know, they, they demonstrated that the, the patients had normal demographics and they, they dichotomized the, the series into pre and post lockdown, basically. Um, they looked at what were the mortality predictors um, and they found the usual suspects you'd expect a nice multivariable analysis. So they found that mortality by being older or having male sex because, uh, you know, uh, men are programmed to die when they have an injury. We, we know that at all, at all levels. Um, coming from a care home, increased multiple hip fracture score. Another reason I like this paper, they use our outcome score, um, increased <laughs> And whether or not the patient's COVID positive. And they, and they were able to quantify that. Being COVID positive gives you a relative risk 5.5%, 5.5 times of death. Now, obviously, that's not, that's not a, a death rate is relatively low anyway. So it's not, you know, it's not every patient dies. And you're clearly not going to leave a hip fracture patient on the ward without uh, surgery. So that's not what I'm suggesting. It just informs, you know. And I think yeah. informing and knowing what the risks are is super important. So it increases their risk of death. Um, they then went on and they said, okay, well, we've collected all this cohort together. We've, that was basically, I think, the primary aim of the paper is to look at the impact of COVID. They then, they then went on and did a, a bunch of other slightly useful things, some more useful than others, based around the data they collected. And, and they, they went on to look at whether or not they were, they were able to um, predict the chances of having a positive COVID test. So all their patients had a COVID yeah. test, some have symptoms, some didn't. Um, and they sort of unlocked you know again in a sort of bit of a fishing trip really they they established that that having a, a high platelet count was, was predictive of covid and we know there's some good reasons why why that might be actually because you do become hypochondriac with covid for, for various reasons uh, and they did a rock analysis which is a way of looking at a continuous variable with known outcome and, and working out whether or not it's good or bad predictor and found that it was kind of a mild to moderate predictor but definitely a predictor that that was there um they then um went on again to look at what was going on with the with the patient populations and found there's no difference in the patient population which i think again is for me the, the second big message of this paper which is 
you know, a lot of us who've done a lot of hip fracture research, and I've done a lot of hip fracture research now, recognize that, that hip fractures really, the population is the same in, in normal times. Whichever, whichever hospital you look at, whether you look at Toronto where Brett is, whether you look in, in Nottingham or in, in, in Glasgow, Edinburgh, you know, anywhere in the world where you've got a westernized society where people live to a moderate age and have frailty fractures, there's a very, very classic distribution of comorbidities of um of mortality associated with hip fracture of dependency of all those things it's a very static population it's a really good weather vane of how well a system's coping and interestingly they found that the the pre and post lockdown populations were the same and one of the things i think we all really worried about was you know what is happening to our patients and our younger patients you know i, I saw patients who presented you know four months or three months after their pion fracture because they didn't want to present and had to do some terrible things to to people's legs that you wouldn't normally have to do uh, i haven't done intraarticular osteotomies in in westernized populations before i get a, f- a fair trickle coming if i had their injuries elsewhere but um you know, but with the hip fractures, you know, we, we did see the same in Nottingham. We saw the hip fractures coming in and we saw a little, little increase in them as, as time went on, as the elderly became a little bit more isolated. Mm-hmm. But it's reassuring to find that they were the same population. They were still being presented. People were not neglecting them, delaying them. They weren't dying at home and so on. So that, that was my second kind of take, positive take home from this. And the third positive take home really is that I'm just really impressed they got it out you know really difficult thing to do in such a short time and it's still the best paper in terms of a a a consistent population where they've Mm -hmm. audited all of them so they're able to make a proper estimate of risk of mortality if you look at the you know the infamous covid surge paper it's terrible and it's in the lancet absolutely terrible and the orthopedic world has done better than that Uh, and i think that's great um, I think, as you say, I think there were several, you know, really good things about this paper in terms of the topic. And one of them, as you say, was trying to genuinely quantify the risk. You know, if you're a necophema patient, your family member is a necophema patient um, during COVID um, and then they get COVID, what is their increased risk? You know, should you be more worried? And I think that was a very valiant thing, a question to address and try and answer. Um, I thought, again, as you said, I thought it was reassuring that the numbers weren't significantly different, you know, despite the sort of social isolation of these elderly patients. That's probably more of a sort of a, a social care, uh, um, uh, what's the word, topic or, or advent. But I thought that was that was interesting. I thought the way that they identified the, the description of how they identified their COVID patients. So in this paper, there were of these two of these 317 patients, there were what, 20, 26, 27 patients who were COVID positive. And in fact, the minority of those six were COVID positive at admission. And then of that, there was then a sub, further 11 who were positive within the first two weeks of admission and a further nine who were positive 14 days after admission. Um, and that, the, the, the dis, they touch on that in the discussion. Um, uh, well, first of all, in the analysis, which is that if you test positive for COVID at any time, not just at admission, you've got an increased mortality risk. And then I thought they very sensibly discussed, and I think this is one of the key things of the paper, is if we see a winter, you know, um, uh, secondary spike in COVID numbers, how are we going to look after these patients as inpatients? Because they are obviously the most... Um, vulnerable in terms of mm-hmm. COVID, and COVID has a you know it has a negative effect on the mortality. So, are we going to care for these patients in six, six bed wards? Are we going to have cohorted um, 
space available for these patients. I think these are really important things that we need to look at as a community um, and prepare ourselves for in the next few months. You talked about you were you know, very positive about the design of the paper and things. I had a question about it, which is why 23 days? Uh, we, the, as you said, they did a very good job of getting you know, um, good data collected on this population. But why 23 days before and after? Um, and why, what was my other question? You know, the 317, can we do reliable multi-regression analysis um, on 317 patients? As you said, where there were big differences in terms of there were, there were univariant differences with ASA, yeah. age, sex. Yeah, so there's yeah, so there's a couple of things there. So I don't know why they did 23 days. You'd have to have to ask ducks that, I guess. I, my, my suspicion is they did 23 days because you know it's three weeks and a weekend. I suspect that's the reason, hmm. actually. Um, but I, I mean, I don't I don't know. It may have been that they were collecting data prior to lockdown in the hope of writing a different paper, and then lockdown comes along and they think, well, we'll we'll balance it out and and have the have the same thing. And you know that there are some more impact papers coming. We've contributed data to them. I'm, I'm sure you guys have as well, which are which are you know better longitudinal analyses of of larger numbers of patients. Which you know I think they just wanted to get this out. Yeah. Uh, answering your question about the Cox regression model. So, so the correct so the, of the multivariable of which they've, they've done a number. Um, so the, the Cox regression, you don't need to worry so much about the, about the number of covariates because it's continuous data. So you've got continuous data, you know, when the event happened, i.e. death, and you also know what the, um, what the, the covariate is that you're looking at. And so, so you don't need to worry so much about the Cox models. You definitely do need to worry about the, uh, about the multivariable regression models in terms of numbers mm. of, of, of participants and covariates. So what they've done, and I'm just screening through my, uh, screening through the paper because they've got these huge tables of the, of the, of the things that they looked at and screened, right? Yep. And what they've done is they've looked for potential statistical links by uh, selecting uh, covariables with a potential uh, with a potential um, reasonable p-value and excluding the others, which is a, an okay way of doing it. So you look at everything, you say, okay, what we'll do, because we've got potential interacting variables here, is anything that has a p-value of, say, less than 0.1 or, or, or 0.5, obviously it's not, it's not a less than 0.1 or less than 0.05, wouldn't be uh, traditionally considered to be highly statistically significant, although obviously the cutoff is formally 0.05. So we'll put all of those things in, and then what happens is you're testing less variables for the for the number. And as a kind of general rule of thumb, you can have around about 30, 30 participants per covariate that you test. So actually, when you look at most of their analyses, they're, they're all right. They're not massively powered, but they're all right. And the reason for that is, what you're doing with a with a multiple regression model is you're essentially you're essentially describing a population. If you have too many too many variables, yeah. you describe that exact population, and then it's not generalizable. So so that's the that that's the sort of the the the, the logic behind it. But there are no hard and fast rules about how many you use. Again, it's a common thing. It's like the post hoc uh, the post hoc power calculation. Mm -hmm. about. You commonly see, you know, we had fifty patients. And we did a multivariable of these 75 variables. Yeah, sure. And therefore we found the ones that were significant. So yeah. I think they've done the best that they can. Well, I, th I, th um, I think that was the, I think that was the point exactly, which is that these things, you know, they are not, 
when they are done and they are done in real time about time critical topics, um, you know, they, they, aren't, they aren't, cannot be designed with the scientific rigor of having complete free reign on what data you collect and when, et cetera, and what patients are presented and admitted, et cetera. Um, so I think that, that, that was a good explanation there actually in, of the robustness of the stats. So that was, that was a useful insight. Thanks, Ben. Um, sure. In terms of future research, where we're going from here, um, as you say, there's, there'll, be, there'll be more studies out about this. I would really like them to explore you know, the findings in relation to the platelets. You mentioned this, platelets of um, lower than, well, they mentioned 217 of the you know, 10 to the power of 9 per litre as a risk factor. Um, and that is certainly seems in, in, in a world where we do not have a perfect COVID test, these sorts of, of associations would seem very relevant to the entire medical community, not just to orthopedics. So I hope that there's more data uh, that comes out in relation to that as well. After that statistical masterclass um, from Ben, which Sorry. is, well, no, it's just, it's why we keep you around, Ben, you know, I mean, otherwise we'd have, you know, all cut you off years ago, I'm sure. Um, but my, Absolutely, I'm stunned into silence here. It's not yeah. my witty banter, I've worked that out years it's, ago. <laughs> it's not just for your witty banter, Ben, no, it's not. Um, but guys, thank you very much. That was uh, very interesting for me. I hope the listeners have enjoyed it. Um, we have a suspicion that this evening's podcast may run slightly longer than the anticipated uh, usual length time, but we hope that you've all sort of stayed engaged and, and enjoyed that. Uh, so guys, thank you very much for joining us. That draws us, I think, to the end of the podcast. So thank you very much there to Professor Ben Oliver, Mr. Brett Rockos joining us. Uh, and thank you very much to you listeners uh, for joining us. And I look forward to welcoming 